Thanks again for everybody who's here for tonight's Face to Face. I'm David Ward. Come a little closer, Frank et al. Um, we're here to talk about the curiously conjoined, tragic in many ways, careers of Marsden Hartley, the artist, and Hart Crane, the great American modernist romantic poet. Um, I'm going to work toward the painting by talking about Crane. I have to declare an interest. I'm more interested in Crane than I am in Hartley. Um, Hart Crane, born in 1899 in Ohio to a wealthy candy manufacturer, and he suffered the perils of having a, a parents who in that day and age really didn't get on at all and ultimately ended up divorcing. In the, the battle between wife and husband, father and mother, Crane gradually took the side of the mother against what he viewed as the Philistine bourgeois money-grubbing candy-making dad and drops his original name, Harold Hart Crane, adopts Hart, his mother's maiden name, for his first name, declaring his allegiance by naming himself. Crane, very early on, despite um, this sort of mercantile, upper-class background, decides that he's going to be a poet. He decides this in his, in his early teens. He gets just the right training at just the right time from a writing teacher in Cleveland publishes his first poem called C-33 at age 17. C-33 was the convict number for Oscar Wilde in the Reading Jail, where, where Wilde was essentially serving time for being gay in England at exactly the wrong time. Also, as you'll, we will get to, 33 recurs as a number in Hart Crane's own life. Um, Crane is essentially, he grad, manages to graduate from high school, never goes to college, and is buffeted by not only his parents' uh, acrimonious end of their relationship, but he moves with his mother's blessing and his father's acquiescence to Manhattan, where he falls in with a literary crowd who, are, who, are, who recognize his, his precocious talent. But Crane, partially because of the, the kind of manic alteration between his domestic life, is, has a very difficult time functioning. He's always offering it a kind of a fever pitch he can't hold a job. He's working at the usual sort of bookstore, department store, warehouse jobs. Runs out of money, goes back to Ohio, gets buffeted around by the family, goes back to New York, falls in with his artistic crowd, tries to make it as a writer. And is fortunate to get the patronage of people like Carl Schmidt, who's an artist with a rather strange cosmological system who inculcates Crane into the ways of early modernism. Crane, despite everything else, and I'm never quite sure how this happens, is absolutely assured of his own talent. He is, a, he is convinced at an early age that he is going to be, he is destined to be a poet and he will make himself into a poet. And so he does, writing for little magazines, eking out a living on the allowances of his dad and his, his, his few commissions. And what Crane does as a poet is really quite extraordinary because Crane becomes the first poet of the modern city. Um, we think of him in terms of New York, so you think of him in terms of Walt Whitman. Whitman, though, in many ways is a pre-industrial, pre-Civil War poet. He's a poet of the small shop, the independent yeoman, the, the, the butcher boy with his shuffle and his breakdown celebrated in Leaves of Grass. And what Crane does at the turn of the century, arriving in New York around 1917, is that he becomes the poet of the modern city. He becomes the poet who in many ways serves as a traditional, a traditional pivot from American literature, which is always looking back, as indeed Whitman's own poem 
look back to a kind of an idyllic past. And so much of American modernism looks back, as, as F. Scott Fitzgerald says at the end of The Great Gatsby, the fresh green breast of the new world that curves the inspiration that drives America forward. Crane isn't having any of this. And it may be because of his own conflicted sexuality, his gradual discovery of himself as a gay man, that he, he embraces the modern city as a site of liberation. It's the area in which he can have full play to not only his imagination, but to his libido and sensual life. But it's also a city in which he recognizes the dangers. It's a city in which he recognizes the incredible technological um, star bright skylight of Manhattan, the way in which America has conquered space and time through construction beams and, and Brooklyn Bridge. But he also recognizes that it as a place where you can fall into temptation, where you can go out at night, cruise the city, and wake up in the subway, not quite sure how you got there. Crane is constantly tempted, and he constantly succumbs to temptation. Um, he's a man in love with the city, and what he does in his poetry, which is to my mind almost singular in American modernists, is he fuses that attraction and repulsion, that sense that the modern life is both an incredible adventure and also a snare, a trap in which we fall, a condition in which we can't escape, a predetermined sense that we're, it, it, we're, that we're damned. And Crane, in the kind of ecstatic of his lyric, is constantly fighting against those two temptations. He works, he publishes a, 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 a book called White Buildings, and he works incessantly through the 1920s on his great poem, The, the Bridge, which is really a restatement of America, a restatement in many ways of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass from the perspective of the, of the early 20th century. Um, as I've indicated, of course, it alludes in, its, in the bridge, alludes to crossing Brooklyn Ferry, um, again, Walt Whitman's pre-industrial city. The bridge is Roebling's Brooklyn Bridge, the bridge of the technological future, the most inspiring in many ways edifice, the most inspiring um, all-conquering structure in the late 19th century, marking the shift from the pre-industrial ferry to the modern Bridge. Crane works on this laboriously, capturing again, and I'll read from some of it, um, capturing again this notion of damnation and liberation at the same time. And he says just again, the, the kind of ecstatic, occasionally almost incomprehensible lyric in which, in which, in which Crane assimilates the modern city and our place in it from the middle of the first part of the bridge. Out of some subway scuttle, cell, or loft, a bedlamite speeds to thy parapets, tilting there momently, shrill shirt ballooming, a jest falls from the speechless caravan. Down wall from girder into street noon leaks, a rip-tooth of the sky's acetylene. All afternoon the cloud-flown derricks turn, thy cables breathe the North Atlantic still, and obscure as that heaven of the Jews, thy gerdon, accolade thou dost bestow of anonymity time cannot raise, vibrant reprieve and pardon thou dost show. The bridge fused this technological achievement, fused in his own incredible imagination. Crane, in the meantime, and this is where I'll start to intersect him with Hartley, 
is working his way towards an, an ecstatic appreciation of the world that many other people were also trying to come to grips with. Marsden Hartley, the great early American abstractionist, who we, we see over there around the corner in Berlin 47, developing a style of abstract portraiture. Um, Crane and Hartley had a distant, frequently acrimonious relationship, one in which um, Hartley, who's about a generation older, censured, bad-mouthed, and, and, and generally criticized Crane for wasting his talent. They came from totally opposite backgrounds. Crane, as I've said, was wealthy. Hartley was desperately poor. Curiously enough, and you can make of this what you will, Edward Marsden Hartley abandoned the name Edward to adopt his mother's, his stepmother's maiden name, Marsden, in much the same way the way that Hart Crane abandons Harold. That's this sort of the, the identification with the stepmother or the mother. Again, though, the element which I'm interested in is that they name themselves. They became liberated by, from, the, from their own ancestral background by adopting a name they bestowed on their own individuality. Hartley, born poor, near orphaned, raised gets again, not unlike Crane, falls in with exactly the right people, makes it to New York, trains, gets into the Stieglitz circle, he moves to Germany, falls in love with a German army officer, paints that officer in a series of magnificent abstractions in which biography is hidden behind the signs and symbols of a modern, flourishing, white-hot technology of Germany. And this element for Hartley of hygiene is very important. Hartley is always clean and Crane is always dirty. And this is the sort of basic personal quarrel between the two of them, the older man, Hartley, always looking censoriously at the younger man, Crane. When Crane would go on a bender and would come home with the Norwegian sailor who was his, his, his most constant lover, uh, Hartley could only tisk tisk. There's a wonderful photograph of Mars and Hartley at the beach in Nice sometime in the 1920s in which he's wearing the full regalia of of, of spats and, and, and of white duck trousers, and he's sort of sitting like this, as if, you know, I'm supposed to be on the sand having a good time, but he's really not. He's perpetually uptight. If Crane is an ecstatic light that burns itself out early, Hartley is, the, is a tortured wanderer in many ways, restlessly searching for an artistic style that he can make his own, working his way through his original creation of abstract portraiture to landscapes that in many ways look like Cezanne, um, to, to, to desert landscapes that look very much like O'Keeffe, and in many ways trying to break through from a patronomy that he would claim in his own name but could not claim artistically for himself. The two of them intersected as sort of competing visions of American modernism, partly increasingly intellectual, increasingly symbolic, increasingly stylized and abstract. Crane always, again, to use Melville's, ter Melville's term, trying to punch through the faceboard mask to get to the essential reality of life, the essential essence, through a language that becomes more Baroque, more and more flowering, and more and more turned into itself. Crane labors mightily on the bridge, his great book-length poem, which contains many more sections than just the one on Brooklyn Bridge. And in the, in the, he, he finds himself increasingly blocked. Um, and he moves, he gets a Fulbright and goes to Mexico in the late, in the, in, around about 1930. Um, Mexico seems, as it did to so many people um, of his generation, seems to have addled him. 
it was hot, it was dry, it was dusty, it was an invitation to always have a drink, it was an invitation always to meet with the stranger who was passing through. He falls through in with the rather enigmatic figure of David Sisqueros, who later is complicit in a plot to kill Trotsky, who has moved to Mexico. Um, and he, Crane, altogether does not conquer his writer's block. In fact, he seems to have made it worse. Compounding this is that for the first time he falls, or at least has a relationship, I'm not sure he fell in love, but he has a relationship with a woman, Peggy Bear, the, 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 the ex-wife of Malcolm Cowley. And on the ship going back, from Mexico to New Orleans, or actually New York, um, Crane, there's an episode in which Crane, as he puts it, totally disgraces himself writing in his diary, and he jumps off the ship um, in a suicide that his family could never accept. They built a grave for him in Ohio, even though his body was never found. There's conflicted reports as to whether he, looked, he reached for the life raft or the, or the bowie that was thrown to him. He nonetheless disappears into the Caribbean. And Marsden Hartley, again, not somebody who would you think of as his friend, not of someone who would you would think of as who would offer a tribute to him, um, seems to have been bereft by this loss, and he's bereft for a variety of reasons. Hartley, despite his rather crabby disposition, did have an appreciation for genius, and one of the things that he always said about Crane is that Crane had wasted his talent. It was this element of unfulfilled expectation that drove Hartley mad. And when Crane dies and the news gets back to New York, Hartley reverts to a modified style of the abstract portraiture with which he had first made his name in 1912, 1915 in Berlin. And he paints this, Eight Bells Folly, memorial to Hart Crane. And he himself describes it as a mad painting, a painting out of, Hartley describes it as a mad painting a painting out of control. And like the German officer paintings, what he does is he abstracts Crane's career into a series of signs, symbols, and even portents, mixing in his own rather imaginative, if not cracked, ethno-religious scheme. And so in it, you see the, the semi, these, these quadrants, which form in many ways, they are emblematic of the bridge, the suspension bridge of Brooklyn Bridge um, crossing the, the East River. The, the stylized boat, it was actually a steamship that come, came back, but nonetheless, an allusion here to the pre-industrial past, which Crane, in fact, eschewed. 33 is the year in which Crane, the age of Crane, when Crane died, and again, the, the coincidence there that C-33 refers to the tortured genius, the tortured gay man, Oscar Wilde, the avatar of the homosexual dilemma at the turn of the century. Um, there's over here, eight bells refers to Crane going over the side at 12 o'clock noon, eight bells in Mariner talk. And here you actually see, literally, um, Hartley was a great abstractionist, but he could be pretty literal. And so you have a ship's bell here with the eight on it. Um, the eyes are the, from Melville's tomb, a poem that Crane wrote early, which I'll read a little bit of. Um, At Melville's tomb, often beneath the wave, wide from this ledge, the dice of drowned men's bones he saw bequeath an embassy. Their numbers, as he watched, bent, beat on the dusty shore and were obscured and rexed past without sound of bells. The calyx of death's bounty giving back a scattered chatter, chapter, livid hieroglyphed, the portent wound in corridors of shells. And also you can see here a kala lily, with, which occurs in there, 
both Hartley's poems, I'm sorry, Hartley's paintings and Crane's poetry. And of course here there's this large shark-like looking fish, um, except in American literature a painting, if there's a large fish it's always Moby Dick. Um, and so this is again the kind of internal nemesis, the notion from Melville and Ahab that, it, that your, your white whale is within you, that Hartley is alluding here again to the self-destruction of Crane. And then there's the elaborate, um, in addition to the eyes of the drowned sailors from Melville's tomb, there's this elaborate cosmological system that, that, that Hartley had fashioned. You see here the mandala, the spinning wheel of Hinduism, the, the sense of eternal return, the sense of recurrence. You see as well nine, which is a symbol of regeneration based on the Trinity, based on the nine days of, uh, of that Christ took after the res returning to, to the disciples after uh, the crucifixion. Um, and then, of course, the eight, uh, literal reference to eight bells, eight bells folly, but also, if you turn it on its side, it's the symbol for infinity. It's the symbol for everlastingness. It occurs here as well within the structure of Brooklyn Bridge. Again, that notion of... of, of of omnipresence, a link to technological power. Here you have the blood on the moon, the moon and the sun at the same time conjoined, a particularly ominous portent occurring in both ancient myth and in Shakespeare. Um, and all in all, as, 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 as Hartley says, it's a mad painting. It has nothing of the coolness, nothing of the distance, nothing of the kind of technological overkill of the abstractions. And what I want to point to in conclusion is just the ultimate link between the two men, which is the eight, again, that you come back to this symbol of uh, infinity. But eight is the one number that's formed out of two identical parts. It's the element of conjoinedness. And what I want to suggest in closing is Hartley's recognition and signaling, um, again, the subtitle of this exhibition is Difference and Desire in American Portraiture. He's signaling their common predicament as gay artists in early, and gay Americans in the early part of the century. The, the two of them, despite of all their temperamental differences, despite all their quarrels, that they were essentially linked by having to reconcile and work their way through a world that in many ways was hostile to them, in many ways as Hartley himself recognizes in this mad painting that killed Hart Crane, that the, that the world was not able to endure his genius, that he himself was not able to endure a world that shunned him, buffeting him from his beginnings, uh, of finding his way, making his way through poems, trying to find peace with himself, creating poems that is, in his own words, lifted grails in our eyes. Thank you.